The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota, focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota, and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of the Makers of Minnesota podcast. I'm Stephanie Hansen, and I'm your hostess with the mostess. And if you are enjoying these podcasts, which I hope you are, I would really appreciate it if you could review them. That helps them be seen by more people. So go to wherever it is that you'd like to listen to your podcasts and put a review together. Also, if you ever have any ideas for makers that you would like us to talk to, we are on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter. And I'm always looking for compelling stories of people that are doing interesting things in the state of Minnesota, which leads me to my guest today, who is Leslie Miller from Amuse Wines. Yes. And Leslie is, uh, would you call yourself a consultant? What is your official title as you explain it to people? So Amuse is a wine consulting firm, and I'm a certified sommelier. I've been a sommelier for almost 16 years. Does that make you like one of the first sommeliers in the Twin Cities in of women? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, actually, there's so many sommeliers, I would say now across the globe. Um, when I became a sommelier, my certifications were originally in Portland. Okay. Um, which is... I mean, it's the home of amazing wine. Sure. And at the time was kind of a first big rush of sommeliers on the West Coast, um, specifically the Pacific West, uh, Northwest. So when you look at sommeliers now in the Twin Cities, yeah, when I first moved here 12 years ago, I was definitely, I'd say probably one of the only certified sommeliers. And now because of the court and how much they're really pushing the program, um, there's been several, um, if not handfuls of certificated or of certified sommeliers, I would say, now in the Twin Cities. And women? And women, too, yeah, which is very fun. And certified Cicerones. Yes, uh, which is beer experts, right? Yes, great women in that industry as well. So let's just talk. You have this. um, We met through the radio program Weekly Dish that we do on Saturdays on My Talk 107.1 from 9 to 11 that focuses primarily on food, spirits, wine, and beverages. And we met through that. And... I just, I was like, wow, she has her own business consulting about wine. How do you get started in something like that? Like, what was your background? So it, I mean, it is kind of scary because they're really still at that. I mean, at that time, there was nothing that I could even remotely look at and say, oh, I want to do a business like that. Right. I feel like it kind of morphed into a number of things. I had started Amuse 13 years ago on the West Coast. I was managing a winery in the Pacific Northwest, Archery Summit in the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. And I had started Amuse a year before I left Oregon as a seller consult firm. Mm -hmm. And I was really helping a lot of our own guests at the winery build their cellars and, you know, organize and whatnot. And then when I had decided to make my move from the West Coast back into the Midwest, because I did grow up in Wisconsin. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Medford, okay. near Wausau-Stevens Point. Sure. So I always say, you know, home of Tombstone Pizza. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right? Pizza and wine, it ended up going together pretty well. And so did you decide to come back to the Midwest for family reasons? Or did you feel like, oh, there's a story to be told here from a professional standpoint? Yeah. So when I started Amizé, I thought, okay, and I wanted to make a big go of it. I really did take a deep look into the Midwest because the West Coast is full of wine. Sure. And I feel like the West Coast was really um, California. I could have moved into wine country, but it was, you know, a lot of sommeliers doing, um, you know, consulting for wineries and restaurants and whatnot. And I thought, gosh, there's such a need for wine education in the Midwest specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the food boom was really kind of about to burst. There were so many more people that were needing help with wine lists. Um, And I just think from a consumer standpoint, people started to really get into food and wine classes. Yep. Due to networks like the Food Network. Yeah. Right? There were more people that felt empowered to do this kind of thing at home. I think the Food Network is, I want to say it's maybe 15 years old. I bet. Yeah. And so then you're 12, your business is 12 years old. The radio show that I do on food is in our 10th year. That really was a very instrumental time. It was like things were just blowing up in terms of right. the local food movement. Yeah. There being more local products. Certainly um, craft beer was just on the very beginning stages. Right. Um, Minnesota wines even. Yes. Were yeah. just starting to burgeon. So it's interesting that we all, that this whole movement that we, you and I spent a lot of time in mm-hmm. really is fairly newish. It is. Yeah. In terms of the amount of focus that's been placed on it. So you worked in the Northeast and Northwest, Northwest excuse yep. me. What made you decide like this was going to be a business? Because it's one thing to be like, yeah, great. I'm going to have this business. It's another thing to be actually supporting yourself. Right. And charging money and yeah. making a W-2 in a business that you love. Right. How did you make that transition? So I, because I had started Amuse a year before I came here, I thought, okay, I didn't know anything about Minneapolis. Um, the only thing that I knew about Minneapolis is that I snuck across the border growing up in Wisconsin, snuck into First Ave sure. several times over. And I love the Twin Cities and everything that I knew about the Twin Cities is that it was booming. And so when I moved here, I thought a good way for me to kind of get my feet wet in the community was to work for a distributor. Yep. So while I was building Amuse, for the first two years, I worked for a small distributor um, on the on-premise sector, so selling wine to restaurants. And then I got to know all of the key players in the food industry, right? right? The food scene. Plus, I was just so intrigued by what we were doing here in Minnesota. I thought, my gosh, okay. I finally took that step after building Amuse for that two years while working distribution And I thought, okay, if I don't do this now, you know, I might not do it ever all by itself. Right. So I took that leap and um, consulted for a number of on-premise accounts. So literally had approached a number of restaurants, uh, country clubs, whatnot, and started to help people with staff training. Uh, Staff training, building lists, how to create um, really fun, cool wine programs in the way of your events for consumers and so on and so forth. And then um, immediately when I moved here, I also started teaching for Cooks at Crocus Hill. Right. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. So I've been teaching, um, you know, with Carl and Marie's locations now for, oh my gosh, it's it's been over, it's almost 13 years. Yep. Um, which has been fantastic too, because then Amuse then morphed into in-home events. 
So let's talk about that. What percentage of your business currently is working for others versus creating events for yourself? So I'd say the Amuse events is still a pretty small sector Mm -hmm. just because the in-home and the corporate event side of my business is so large. Um, Also, the consultation from restaurants then moved into consultation for international wineries. Okay. So darn the, the international that international piece, <laughs> darn inter- it. The international winery piece was fantastic because then it also, I was constantly on the move and always in different international locations. But then got me thinking more about traveling with consumers. So in the last few years, we've started to take consumers to international locations or set up trips for them in international regions. Do you have to coordinate all of the details or do you hire a travel agent and then you're just the color commentary? Yeah, I've kind of done both. And now I am 100% into hiring others to do all the logistical because it's really not my forte. So I have found the best people in the industry to do that for me. Yeah. So you can go and enjoy the trip and be the color commentary and plan the experience. And those are the hard lessons that you learn as an entrepreneur, clearly, because when you first start out, you're the accountant, you market, you do all the planning, you're the person running around getting all the supplies, you're planning the curriculum, and then what? I'm now planning the bus ride. And then you're (laughs) washing the glasses. Exactly. So, Which of those jobs do you like the least? You know, I would say... Um, my mother was also an entrepreneur of a number of businesses, and I would, I feel like even if I am still up at one a.m. and washing glasses, I feel like there's such a pride that I don't hate any part of it. I know it sounds so silly, but I really do love all pieces of it because it's mine. And if I didn't want to do the dishes at one a.m., I didn't have to. You know, I can do them. You know, before the event the next day or whatnot. Right. So, How many nights a week are you out? You know, that varies, stuff. So I would say anywhere between five and seven. Okay. Um, and it is a full time when people ask, how do you start a business like yours? I was just in San Diego and had a young sommelier say, I want to do what you're doing. And I said, just get ready because it's, uh, you know, it's it can range from literally 60 to 100 hours a week. Is it hard to have a personal life when this is all pretty much, you know, four to midnight work? Yeah, I would say that the really fortunate piece about what I do is that the food and the wine industry is my personal life as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Right. I'm emerged in it. I get to relax, I would say, you know, at the end of our events and whatnot. Um, I would say also that my better half is also a huge, um, you know, piece of of my industry as well. Mm-hmm. So Jason then helps me with my own business. And then we get to travel together and do these things from a personal standpoint as well. If you're working, you know, five to seven nights a week, there's not a lot of room for expansion. So do you think about bringing another employee on? And how do you do that when what you're selling is basically your knowledge and your expertise? Yeah, a very dangerous side to building kind of a personality-based business, right? Um, I've had one employee with me for almost eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, He helps me with a number um, of events off-site. And now I have upwards of five people that help me with off-site events because we've now done events upwards of 12,000 people. Right. So obviously I need an army when I put some of those events together. 
I would say that the next sort of levels is I've actually just started in the last year two additional businesses that are sort of arms of Amuse. So explain that. Yeah. So one is an educational-based business, which will give you more wine education uh, from a web-based standpoint. Okay. And then, so you can log in and take right. classes and complete exactly. modules. Okay. Yep. And then you get a little one-on-one time as well, obviously – um, teaching now from a standpoint of Facebook Live and so on and so forth makes this a little bit more accessible. Yep. So you're not necessarily watching the old school videos of, you know, wine. wine and the teaching. production of it is a lot right. less expensive. Like it used to be, you know, $10,000 to produce a video yeah. of something. And now you can just get on your Facebook and yeah. start. All you need is the Kardashian glow <laughs> That's you know, right. lamp and you're all good to go. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then um, a really large part of this, too, is the wine club. That we will be launching here within the uh, next six months. So we've been working. Okay. Yeah, it's huge. So we've been working almost two years on this platform. And what this does is it takes my expertise and all these people that I've met with all over the globe, all these really amazing farmers and families that are distributed here through the Twin Cities Metro. Um, But now what I'm doing is I'm collecting these wines and we're going to make them available um, to you that are, it's delivered right to you, to your home. So will you have an app that goes with that? Will it just be something that people sign up for online? Yeah. So the app will certainly come, you know, once we get this kind of this off and running, but it will also deliver wine to people across the United States. So you sign up online, um, you can start with a starter pack and it's, very different from any other wine club out there. Why? Because we are basing this according to not just the grape or the region or that particular style that you always like, but I'm literally pinpointing all the physiological breakdown parts of the wine. You tell me that you like the 2012 Elk Cove Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. I'm going to look at that bottle from a physiological breakdown and then help to point you to other grapes and regions across the globe, according to that particular bottle. So what's the fruit like? Uh, what is the acid like? The tannins? Uh, all of those really fantastic parts that make a wine whole. And what is it about that particular wine that you're attracted to? And then help you find whites, reds, and rosés, bubbles from around the globe that have similar characteristics. What would a membership like that cost? It is zero dollars. That's the really fantastic part. So you sign up. The wines are actually at a retail price. Um, We're picking in a really great price point zone so that you can have them all delivered right to you. Um, You just log in and all the information is yours for free right at your fingertips. So it's mostly um, like a curated wine selection, but you're buying retail. You don't have to like be in a special club. You don't get six bottles at a time. You do get six bottles at a time, actually. You get okay. three different wines, um, two of each that come to your door. You can also choose three if you want. Cool. If you can't drink that much stuff, you can always just take it. Yeah, that's yeah. always been my my problem is not being able to drink too much. Um, but, but I feel like that's everybody's problem. You know, people feel like, hey, I'm really I'm anxious to kind of step outside my box a little bit. I know that I like this one wine, and so I go to it. Often. Now, how do I discover new grape varietals, new regions um, from different locations that maybe you've never heard of before? 
Well, and we have a lot of these massive wine tastings, and I do like them because they're fun. But one of the things that I learned, and I'm not a a sophisticated wine person at all, but the first time I went to a wine tasting where there was actually like a flight, Mm -hmm. where you were tasting four versions of the grape, or you were tasting four different wines from a specific area, it occurred to me at that point that that's really, to me, the way to taste wine. Because if I'm going from booth to booth to booth, yeah, I'm not really able to compare or contrast yep. the smell, the bouquet, the taste, as I am if they're like right in front of me and I'm going maybe low to high or high right. to low. It was like such a different experience. And I thought, oh, this is really the way to taste wine yeah. is to sit down be slow about it, be back to back with the flight. And and I then, because I never thought I could tell the difference between wines. I mean, really bad wine, yeah. Really good wine, maybe. Right, yeah. Because I think sometimes between, you know, 10 and $40, there's a lot of ground to cover in there. And the most expensive bottle of wine isn't always the best. Right, this is true. But all of a sudden, it was like, wow, I really feel like I can taste differences here and what appeals to me. It maybe isn't the best in terms mm-hmm. of quality, but it's like that's the one I like the best. Right. Um, how did you get the confidence? I mean, this is such a snooty industry. Yeah. It's still snobby. It still yeah. feels unapproachable for a lot of people. Right. And when you go to a restaurant... It uh, a lot of people still, you know, they're selling you the wine in a way yeah. that you're just like, yeah, mm, I don't know mm-hmm. what that means or yeah. What is it about this industry that appealed to you? Well, it's kind of funny coming from a girl who grew up in Wisconsin, whose mom owned two taverns, right? Okay. I mean, my mom was teaching me how to make an old fashioned. But clearly that didn't come with six different styles of bitters. Right. It was the old muddler with, you know, there might have been a The maraschino back, cherry. Right? There might have been some <laughs> sort of, I was, you know, learning how to make grasshoppers. Let's yep. just be honest. Wine was not in my childhood. And so um, I feel like that sort of Midwestern part of me that wants to connect people to other people. And I think that was the story of wine that really got me so excited because all of a sudden I started looking at wine as farming. You know, the things that you're actually drinking, same ways that you can look at this when you're eating food products. Um, And I think that was maybe my connective piece to it that made me very, very passionate about it. I agree that there are parts of this industry that are a little bit snooty. And I think that's why I became a sommelier almost 16 years ago. Um, When I originally went into the International Sommelier Guild program, my goal was just to, yeah, I wanted to learn everything that there was about wine. But at the time, which they don't offer these programs anymore, is it was wine, beer, tea, sake, cigar, and spirit. And so you ran through this two-year program where you learned all these parts of food and beverage. It sounds like a Certix menu. Yeah, right? (laughs) It was so fun. But then what I realized is I saw... The lights go on for people when you just took it down a notch and you let people talk about what they like and maybe what they normally have for dinner or their travels. And I feel like when you could make wine more connective to people instead of standing over people and teaching, that's where I think the excitement sort of came on for me because I love I love teaching wine because what you're doing is you're just bringing these these 
people's stories, you know, the farmer's stories to the glass that's in front of somebody. And then they go, whoa, I've never heard of this great Pinot Meunier. And now I'm drinking this from Germany. So do you think that you have like a special specialized palate to be able to taste these nuances in this in wine? Think, like, are you a super taster, I think is what they call you? Actually, super tasters are the worst tasters. Did you know that? No. Because they taste um, mostly high acid, and that's pretty much it. You know, here's what happens. I think over time, you develop a pretty great palate, right? In the wine industry, I've known some immaculate palates. And I would say um, that that is something that you teach yourself over, you know, a period of time. Even when you first become a sommelier, Compared to now, you know, 16 years later, my palate has certainly developed into, I would say, a couple of other levels. Mm -hmm. But I think it's how you get that information across to people. And that's what's most important. Um, There are some amazing people in the wine industry, but I don't think that they always have the ability or sort of the, the personal side to it where they can make this approachable for people. Do you have a wine cellar in your own home? I do. Is that something? It, it's I don't get that. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I understand that some wine will age better, and therefore you might buy it here, and then you're gonna put it in your cellar right. for a couple of years, then you're gonna drink it later. I I just like people collect wine yeah. as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And can anyone possibly drink all that wine? And yeah, that's the question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just I don't get collecting wine, but I know a lot of people do it. Yeah, well, you know, collecting wine is a dangerous thing. It's the more that you learn about wine, the more excitable you get. And then you go to these regions like Bordeaux, you go to places like Barolo and Barbaresco in northwest Italy, and you go, whoa, these wines are so much better, you know, 30 to 40 years after they've been in the bottle. Um, I remember when I first started collecting, I was 29. And I thought, okay, this was my first first growth from Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. And I remember I paid at the time, I was like, $300 for this bottle. Yeah. You know, and I won't be able to drink it for 30 years. This is absurd. Um, but then years later, you know, I ended up with a collection of almost 3,000 bottles. So then you get to a point where you can't drink that much. Yeah. So you then really what can. do you do? Do you well, sell you start, them? Do you trade them? Well, a lot of people do that, right? They'll start selling off parts of their collection. And when the economy kind of dipped there pretty hard, people were selling off. So we actually had a pretty large collection of folks in the United States that were collectors. And now we're down to a pretty small percentage of people who are very serious collector, collectors. But man, you they're either selling them off, but you're not getting as much for the wine anymore that you used to. So you really just have to drink them. And you have to have a really good system to know when to drink them. Yeah, because I was going to say that must be hard to know if you have 3,000 bottles in your basement. Yeah, you have to have them electronically filed so that you know when their drinking windows are, what to drink them with. That sounds like so much pressure. (laughs) It is pressure. All of a sudden you get a notification on your phone, we are in the window! I know it's kind of funny because my my birthday's coming up in April and I was thinking about having a champagne party. Yeah. Right? But I'm like, Please I have do. all this wine. <laughs> yeah, I'll come here. Um, I have all this wine sitting in my cellar that is, I have a, a good amount of it that should be starting 
you need to consume it now. Yeah. So I just thought I'll have a raid Leslie Cellar party. That instead. sounds like a good be party, fun, right? Because it is hard. So when you look to um, grow your business and you've got these new initiatives happening, how much does social media play into what you're doing or has it played into it at all? It's enormous. It really is. I think um, if you're not paying attention to all the avenues that you can uh, talk about your business, I think that you're missing out. Obviously, as an entrepreneur, it's very expensive to hire somebody from a social media standpoint. So you have to constantly educate yourself. And um, and I do have actually a couple of people that help me with social media just from a newsletter standpoint and things like that. Mm-hmm. But really, if you don't stay on it every day, the, the masses are so finicky about what they're listening to or watching that you can slip off of somebody's radar in less than 24 hours. Do you have FOMO? Fear of missing out. Yeah, right. Yeah, I feel like people do. And I think the other part, too, is that food is such a huge part of my business as well. When I travel, not only do I show wine, but I show food. And I have more people asking me about, can you show me another picture of that dish? Or can you tell me where to go get the best meal that you had in San Diego or so on? I did notice on your website that you had a kind of a guide to Napa Valley. Yeah, we have a new blog up. So I send a lot of my own um, clients out to the West Coast and I'll tell them, hey, go see these 10 wineries, go eat at these five restaurants, stay at these three hotels, you'll have the time of your life. Well, often, you know, people will report back and send me these amazing emails and I have a really fantastic um, client. She's turned, She and her husband have just turned into some great friends as well. And I said, hey, Jennifer, would you mind putting up a recap of your entire week? And so she did. You'll have to go to Amuse's website and the blog to read it. But it's great because she lists her favorite wines, Mm -hmm. where she went. It was real interesting. Yeah, some really cute places that they ate as well. And I love hearing that because it's not always from my standpoint, but they were looking at it from, hey, we just walked in and guess what? The uh, Chex nut mix that went along with this Pinot Noir was the best pairing yeah. that we had all week, you know? When you are a solitary person, you're, and I don't mean solitary, like you're just alone. Yeah. But when you're an independent business owner, you know, things like healthcare come to mind because as I've gone on a freelance situation myself. Yeah. Do you worry about like healthcare and those sort of uh, putting together money for an IRA and those sort of mundane life things? Yeah, it's it's actually something that's it's in a huge part of what you think of, and obviously you don't stress about that as much when you have a company who's saving for you, yeah, four hundred one or providing healthcare for you. I think a lot of people just jump into the entrepreneur side, not thinking about saving that or. Taxes. I was going to say paying quarterly right? taxes is a real taxes or, you know, for me as well, I pay liquor liability um, mm-hmm. insurance know, insurances and the amount of taxes that I pay just back to the state mm-hmm. is a pretty enormous chunk of my income. So, yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. I think it's really important that you connect yourself with a financial person. Yep. Just to help you plan for that, because you can find yourself at the end of you know, your first year of thinking, okay, I should have put way more money aside. Yeah, yeah. that I think is a very common thing that entrepreneurs find out, uh, making sure you're paying your quarterly taxes, making yeah. sure you're estimating them right. I haven't 
met a person yet that hasn't had kind of a horror story yeah. of like, oh, and then I didn't do this. Yeah. You know, I think it's real common. So having some um, advice is helpful. Yep. Um, where do you want people to connect with you? Where is the easiest? And here's your pitch. So you have your one minute elevator speech. Why should people hire you and what should they hire you for? Um, well, number one, my services are very unique. I always say that my style is exceptionally engaging. Um, I really appeal to any style of wine drinker. So whether this is your first glass of wine or you've traveled the world, um, with wine, I would say that my style is approachable for all levels of wine drinkers. The in-home events that we perform and the corporate events that we perform are unbelievable. We do, I also have a catering partner, so we connect to some great groups in the way of food and wine. Um, you would head to amusewine.com, A-M-U-S-E-E wine.com. And then you can also find me on all social media channels at the same handle, Amuse Wine. And um, and if you're kind of leery maybe about taking classes, mm-hmm. um, you can follow all of my social media. And actually you can watch um, just through the lens of that social media channel watching all the classes because I perform all the cooking and wine classes. Um, and are you still with Cooks of Crocus Hill? Yeah, I still teach loads of classes. Um, my chef partner for years has been Chef Mike Shannon. He and I together have literally taught together for over a decade. Wow. You um, must have a lot of good recipes. Yeah, and... we have good stuff. We've taught over 400 classes there together. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, really cool stuff, too. So um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what is your favorite wine that you're drinking right now that would be accessible to listeners here in the podcast? That's a good question. My favorite wine is the is the wine that I'm drinking right now. <laughs> it's like your shoes, right? Like, what's your favorite pair of shoes? Um, you know, I'm this time of year. I really love high acid whites. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I started drinking lots of Gruner Veltliner again. Yes. I love um, the Landhaus, uh, the Meyer. And uh, Landhaus Meyer makes an amazing Gruner Veltliner at a fantastic price. It's like fifteen dollars mm-hmm. on the shelf. So I I love those great little Austrian whites. I think some of the dry German Rieslings as well. You know what? Rudy Vist makes an unbelievable dry Riesling uh, for about twelve dollars. That will totally blow your hair back. That's funny because I love the, it. The last time I saw you at an event. You were pouring both whites and reds, and yep. you were like, white or red? I was like, oh, I don't really like white. You were like, well, <laughs> you need to try this white. Oh, yeah. And I did, and I really liked it. And it was the first white I'd had in, honestly, two years. Yeah, really? So, yeah. I've had Gosh. a lot of rosé and a lot of champagnes, but just like white wine. Yeah. So I have been way more open since then. Yeah. Because I always associated white wine with the very heavily oaked Chardonnays. Right. And I did not like that taste in a white wine. I just, it wasn't for me. Yeah. And so I've been much more open. And like, if you would have told me that I would have enjoyed a Riesling, I would have just been like, what? No way. They're (laughs) too sweet. Nobody likes Rieslings except the Germans. Yep. And it's really opened up my eyes just about what I like, but also to be more adventurous. Yep. Is there a book that you like or that you recommend? Um, There was a book that uh, Dara Moskowitz-Grumdahl wrote called On Drinking Wine that for me was one of the most accessible books on learning about wine and the terroir and how to classify wines. But is there something that you would recommend? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Madeline Puckett in the Pacific Northwest, speaking of, um, she and her partner wrote the Wine Folly um, Fundamentals of Wine book. It's I don't think it's called Fundamentals of Wine, but it's the Wine Folly Wine book. Um, if you just head to her site or on Amazon. And she has a website too, doesn't she? She does. So she's done an amazing job really making maps and really technical Infographics, information yeah. accessible. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done now is I've purchased that book over and over and then handed it to a lot of my new restaurant staffs. Oh, interesting. And that's been really great because I feel like it's brought, you know, kind of, hey, I'm I'm interested in you know, different grapes from around the globe. And she gives you profiles and regions and all kinds of really fun stuff. It's the best book I think out there right now for getting into wine. I've been to her website and there's a lot of cool information there. Things mm-hmm. that are, I think I saw some stuff that was on social media that was pretty digestible. I was like, oh, yeah. that's cool. And yeah. followed the rabbit hole. And then there I found myself at her site. Yeah. And I think she's probably, I would say in the last 10 years, she's the first person to kind of make those infographics yeah. approachable, right? For because, wine in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, wine used to, oh, I mean, there were some really weird maps out there for years. They were always brown. They were. <laughs> like, I, just, I don't want to brown read Brown maps map. with clumps of grapes and then glasses in all yeah. of these, like the boot of Italy. I can yeah. just see a map like that in my head. And now um, her maps are all color-coded yeah. and fun. And They're fancy. really fun to read. Yep, That's at uh, winefolly.com. Yep. So, all right. We've got Amuse Wines. Leslie Miller, thank you for joining us today and talking about your business and thank your you. podcast. Thanks. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your story. I just always have thought it was very cool that you really are your own business, that your whole business is based on your knowledge of what you've learned, and you're sharing that with others. And when I'm with you... Seeing you teach or um, seeing you at an event, you really just seem like that connection that you're trying to make with people oh, thank you. is really neat. So I have been wanting to have you on for a while just to talk with you a little bit about what it's like to have your own business. So Well, it's my goal to get people to drink more wine. So the It won't the be a hard goal for me to <laughs> reach. Right. So there's awesome. that. Good. All right, Leslie. Thanks. Thanks.